we are going on a journey, a very long journey, through the world of the target novelizations and publication order. Every week, we are looking at a new book, talking about Terrace Dix, Malcolm Hulk, and all our Doctor Who novelization friends. Whatever you do, keep turning the pages. This is Jason Miller of the Doctor Who Literature Podcast, a member of the Direction Point Podcast Network, and you are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club. Enjoy your travels. Hi, I'm Rupert Booth. I am known as Paul Ferry. And my name is Barry Williams. Together, we host Time Ram. Time Ram's a cruel mistress. It's a random number generator. That also. We roll a number from 1 to 13, and that's our doctor. Then 1 to 300 for the story, and then we ram them together. Even if it doesn't make sense. Cruel, I tell you. Time round. Putting the wrong doctors in the wrong stories, so you don't have to. You're listening to Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Hi, this is Louise Jameson, and I play Leela on Doctor Who. Well, way back in the day, that is. You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels. Hello, fellow time travelers, and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club the podcast in which we undertake the masterful task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations. <laughs> Spoiler alert, this one has the master in it. You had to do it, didn't you? <laughs> I really did. I did. My name is Tony Whit, and today we have an equally masterful three-person discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979. That would be me. There's our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes, was not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello. And finally, there's our semi-novice fan, one who has seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've done for this podcast, and this time around, it's the with... Yeah. This time around... It's the wise. It's the witch. Well, no, no. <laughs> Ding dong. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you want that, Allison Fitch Seyfried. Hello, Allison. Hello. Cast any good spells lately? <laughs> no, no. Just the bad ones, right? The curse is on me. Okay. Oh, I have, I have no skills. <laughs> have no skills. God. Oh God! If you like what you're hearing, though, again, I'm not quite sure why. Please check our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash dwtargetpc. Depending on the amount you give per month, you receive, among other possible goodies, mugs and t-shirts with our logos on them. Just like giving to PBS, but not a Target book. Since we know you have so many of those, you employ an all-powerful old man in a chair to keep them for you. <laughs> because that's what the keeper do. He keeps things. <laughs> Just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. And as usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, Toby Bengelsdorf, the Video Junkyard Podcast, the Doctor Collectors Podcast, Hans Wax, Stephen Pickering, James Sumnall, Dave Davis, Simon Painter, and Joseph Middleton Welling. Thank you all. What a list. Mm -hmm, thank you. Did I do it all in one breath that time? I think I did. Quite possible. That's amazing. I haven't done that in one breath in a long time. That's remember the public. Only you can kill Tony Witt by becoming <laughs> a patron. patron. 
This is true. One and more list. And exceeding by one name his capacity <laughs> to list all our patrons in one breath. Well, that's true. I may have an embolism, but at least we'll have your financial support for my funeral. <laughs> We also have our Goodreads discussion group where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can find us there at tinyurl.com forward slash Y7KMASPR. In fact, we expect you to. We continue our discussion of Tom Baker's final season as we discuss Terrence Dick's novelization of The Keeper of Tronken. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who and the Keeper of Trocken, adapted by Terrence Dix from the script by Johnny Byrne that aired from 131-81 to 221-81, published by Target Books in May 1982. As of this recording in November 2022, this title is out of print. It is available as an unabridged audiobook, 124 pages. That's Johnny Byrne, not John Byrne. So I know Allison's ears probably pricked up as every comic book fan's ears prick up whenever they hear that author's name, but they are not related. One of them is a good writer, the other one, not so much. <laughs> By the time that Keeper of Trocken was commissioned, it was already clear that John Nathan Turner's new format for Doctor Who was a success. It was also clear that even more changes were about to happen. Script editor Christopher H. Bidbead had decided to leave, in part due to the craziness surrounding the production of Warrior's Gate, but also because his working relationship with JNT had begun to sour. The rejection of his request for a pay raise was the last straw, though he agreed to write both the last story for the season and the first story of the next, which, with Keeper, will form a sort of trilogy introducing the new Doctor. And yes, there would be a new Doctor, as Tom Baker was also unhappy with the new producer, had also been turned down for a pay raise, and was ready to leave. But while John Nathan Turner was preparing for the daunting task of casting a new lead, he wasn't entirely confident that viewers would accept a new actor, especially after Baker had been in the part for seven years by this point. To that end, he wanted to bring in a character from the recent past to make the transition smoother. He initially asked Elizabeth Sladen to return and play Sarah Jane Smith again for a number of episodes. While she turned that down, she did accept his offer to appear in a Christmas special, which would serve as a pilot for a potential series starring herself and K-9 called K-9 and Company. In story order, this follows Tom Baker's last story, and since there is a novelization of it, believe it or not, that will be our Christmas special this time, so be looking for that after Chicago TARDIS, won't you? Thank you. Next. J&T asked Louise Jameson to come back as Leela, which also would have brought back K-9, because of course she left and stayed on Gallifrey with K-9. Maybe he'd seen that while he never cared much for the Tin Dog himself, the fans felt very differently about K-9. This might explain why the Doctor and Adric are so gung-ho to go to Gallifrey at the end of the story, since presumably that's how they would have met up with Leela again. So he asked Louise Jameson, who initially turned him down, then she changed her mind, but then she changed her mind again when she found out that she would only be coming back for a handful of episodes and not an entire season. I personally think this would have been fabulous, but that's mainly because I think Louise Jameson is fabulous. And so is Leela. And you would think Leela would have killed Adric. <laughs> oh, God. Probably. That would have been the best Cured part him, ever. Literally. Yeah. 
or they would have just dumped his ass on Gallifrey and gone about themselves, but it didn't happen. In any case, John Nathan Turner decided instead to bring back an old enemy for the Doctor, and thus we get the Master in the story. He would return in the same disheveled state as he was in The Deadly Assassin, but he would be played this time by Jeffrey Beavers, who had not only appeared in Doctor Who before, but was actually married to Caroline John, who played Liz Shaw. So the husband of Liz Shaw is the master in this one. Although Beavers played the master in his emaciated form, he would not go on to play the regenerated master. That honor would go to the late Anthony Ainley, who in this episode plays Tremas. You might have noticed that the name is an anagram for master. I didn't until reading the notes, and now I hate it because that's all I can see. Yeah. And you were not the only one who hates that because John Nathan Turner insisted on that, even though Christopher H. Bidmead thought it was ridiculous, as indeed it is. If only he could see what's coming. Well, it seems like it would be pretty challenging to pick up on just hearing it on the show also. True. Because you don't have the ER sound in it. <laughs> the ER sound? Well, Master versus Tree Moss, it's just, it does not sound similar. Oh, got it. Got it. Okay, you're right. It'd be much worse, I guess, if it was Termas. But... Yeah, that's true. Anthony Ainley would go on to play the Master for the entire rest of the 80s. So we will see this version of the Master at the very end of the story quite often. And his last performance as the Master would be in the video game Destiny of the Doctor right around 1993, I believe. And then he died and didn't play the Master anymore. We should talk about Johnny Byrne for a second, who's no relation to the famous comic writer and artist John Byrne. Byrne instead was one of the first people considered to be script editor for the show before Bidmead, but Byrne did not want to have to move to London. He had worked on science fiction television before, contributing a few scripts for the early 1970s series Space 1999, and he would eventually contribute another script for the series in Peter Davison's Next to Last Season. No, his last season. I'm sorry about that. His original take on the story was seen to be a little too close to the thematic elements of Megloss, and the final story bears very little resemblance to his earlier drafts. Speaking of themes, an interesting thing pointed out to us by Jennifer Picker last time was that there is an overarching theme to this season that the production team couldn't possibly have planned, simply because of the chaos involved in planning this season. The entire season has themes of entropy, death, and rebirth. In the Leisure Hive, we see the Argolans almost dying out, watching them decay as they get older, only to have the Doctor and Romana come in and by their intervention give the entire race a new lease on life. In Megloss, much the same thing happens with the Tigellans, whose dependence on the dodecahedron ends so they have to return to the surface to create a new life there. In Full Circle, those themes are obvious, as well as in State of Decay. Both of those stories give us civilizations that are stuck in a rut, and only the intervention of the Doctor and company allow them to evolve and advance. Here, it's the fairly static society of Trocken, being menaced by a decaying master who eventually gets a new body, and we'll see all of these things play out in Tom Baker's final story, which we'll be talking about at Chicago TARDIS, especially when the Doctor gets himself a new body as well. So, mm. 
Let's have a dramatic reading of the back cover, shall we? Dalton, would you be willing to do this for us? Yes, of course. For ages past, the union of Trocken has lived in peace and harmony thanks to the power of the Source, controlled by generations of Keepers. But the current Keeper, his powers waning, senses some all-pervading evil about to invade his world. He summons the Doctor to his aid. To save Trocken, the Doctor fights the terrifying Melkrul, only to find that his, this new enemy conceals an older and even deadlier foe, one the Doctor has encountered before. And amazingly, that back cover doesn't give it away, though you can pretty much figure it out. Not completely. <laughs> yeah, the Doctor completely. gets around. He's encountered more than one villain. Yeah, it could have been anybody, but it, Melker turned out to be the master, so... That's interesting. Mm -hmm. So, of course, if you were around in 1982 and you were reading this book, you already knew who the surprise villain was. But for a back cover of a Target book not to tell us that outright is pretty amazing. So, Dalton, what was your first impression when you got this book? (laughs) Yeah, we've had plenty of covers that completely ruined any kind of surprise. (laughs) I did have some suspicions (laughs) that it may be the return of the master, but yeah, I wasn't completely convinced um, just from the back cover. The front is another one of our kind of -of run-of-the-mill characters staring off into the distance and some thing that we don't quite know what it is necessarily from the back cover, but we find out quickly that that is the statue slash TARDIS spaceship whatever thing so yeah i didn't have much to go by but i know that we're kind of picking up steam as we're getting to the end of the season and the impending regeneration of the doctor so you know i felt like the stakes could be raised a little more with this so yeah i was kind of excited to see what would happen okay and allison what was your first impression I actually liked the cover more than usual. I thought it was a nice portrait. I liked what I thought was an asymmetrical robot design and sort of monochromatic palette. And that was the last thing I liked about this book. (laughs) So for context, the night before I read it, I went out and had a good time at the Walgreens and had them put the COVID booster in one arm and a flu shot in the other. Oh, Ooh, no. One fist of iron, the other of steel. The right one oh. don't get you, then the left one will. And my <laughs> brain decided we were just going to be sitting out this entire story. I listened to this on the tape and then I had to read it because oh, wow. I kept rewinding 30 seconds like, wait, what happened? Who cares? And I did not feel bad at all. It is the <laughs> least engaging story that I have encountered in all of our adventures together. Wow. And I, I understand that some of it was, you know, I had these shots and was not entirely myself. Mm-hmm. So I didn't hate this. It was just slippery. It would yeah. not stay in my mind. And I mean, like, I had to reread over and over, and it was just, the book is, you know, Harrison Ford pointing a gun at me saying, the master is going to seize control of the source, and I'm Tommy (laughs) Lee Jones saying, I don't care. (laughs) So it wasn't offensive, it was just one thing after another, and blah, 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 married councils were all related. I don't watch Game (laughs) of Thrones. So, um, I don't think there was any incest in it. No, not this time. 
there wasn't anything I remember as being particularly bad. It was just, it wasn't just elements we've seen before. It was just the least engaging one of these that we've read. And mm -hmm. I will tell you what the bad omen was. Mm -hmm. No prologue. Oh, that's right. You have to sacrifice a victim <laughs> in the first page, or at least frighten someone pretty well in order to have a good adventure later. And yeah. uh, this is one of the first that we've had with no prologue, because it's not just Darren's dicks. He does nice ones, but they almost all have prologues. And I mean, I guess you could call it a, a prologue, but not not the usual one we have where it's sort of the villain or the unexplained force makes its first appearance mm -hmm. and scares or kills the locals. Except it kind of does. It just doesn't mm -hmm. kill anybody. And it's a very once upon a time kind of prologue which yeah i mean it it is a prologue but it it is not the kind that we usually have and it was interestingly enough the only thing that was kind of different about this one mm -hmm. in that way but it was actually less interesting than usual yeah yes if it wouldn't have had like the framing device of the doctor and adric basically <laughs> having story time with the keeper <laughs> if they would have just shown us you know cassia in the garden dealing with Melker and the Fosters, like seeing the thing fall and all of that, that, that could have felt more like the atmosphere that we wanted from a prologue instead of having this weird, like ghost come and tell them a story. Yeah. I did like when the keeper sort of materializes, it's with his seating. Yes. With his throne. <laughs> yeah. And I, uh, I don't know if you recall a few years ago, Dave Grohl injured his leg right before he was going to go on tour. And he had to not mm -hmm. only keep off of it, but keep it elevated. <laughs> yeah. So basically he commissioned a motorized throne that he would drive around stage. Oh my God, that's <laughs> hilarious. And I actually saw this at Wrigley Field and it was terrific. And he since loaned it to other musicians. <laughs> so I kind of visualized the keeper as like... 95-year-old Dave Grohl. <laughs> he travels with the throne. He's got to have it. He materializes with it. And it still wasn't enough to be interesting. Yeah, admittedly. See, the way I think of that throne is, if you're the keeper of Trocken and you're there for hundreds, thousands of years or whatever, and your body is slowly aging or what have you, you need some form of bathroom facilities. So the... <laughs> I thought you were going to say you need to, uh, you know, some support. You're you're tired of walking around, but you uh, no. went much more for the facilities. Yeah, I have a feeling that the uh, bottom of that throne is hollow. And <laughs> through the power of the source, wow. he gets rid of his waste. But <laughs> that's the way he does it. Yeah, the wow. whole thing, the whole thing just, uh It's not terrible. It's just there's nothing of interest. Yeah. And here's the thing. This story, the televised version of it, has an interesting quality to it. It does have almost a fairy tale quality with that framing story. But then uh, the problem with putting that story on the page is that every single, and I mean every single flaw in the original story, is thrown into sharp relief. And Terrence Dix doesn't seem to care much for Johnny Byrne's script because he does not go out of his way to add a single goddamn thing to the original script. Terrence Dix loves his minor functionaries, you know, conflicting with the senior government officials and 
petty intrigues and jealousies and little side romances and whatnot. And if he even he is not interested in it, this sort of favorite scenario of his. Yeah. Uh, what hope do we have? Yeah. Neiman should have been the sort of character that Terrence Dix would have written the hell out of. Yeah. Not interested at all. In fact, you could see him get a glimmer of interest when he's describing the master's previous form. And of course he is because he worked directly with Roger Delgado. So of course he's going to describe Roger Delgado. And this version of the master that's emaciated comes from a Robert Holmes script. So he's going to give that some credence too, but that's it. Not a single extra bit of exposition, nothing. Which can be fine. Just, you know, go ahead and let it move forward. But mm-hmm. it still did not move forward. I mean, things happen in order, but... Yes. This one is the very definition of script to page. Mm-hmm. It is just direct from the script. There are changes, but not many. And it's like, okay, well, that's a problem. Because as I said, the original flaws of the story are now in sharp relief. And I don't think I ever noticed watching it as often as I have how many subconscious questions I have about this whole system that the Union of Trocken has set up because, my God, it's a dystopian nightmare. Yes, I was going to say, for such a wonderful society, they sure go straight to the capital punishment a lot. Well, but yes. why don't we just kill them? Would that be easier? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and there's no checks and balances. There's no court system. It's just like, you know, I think we should kill them. Oh, do you think that's a good idea? Yeah, I do. Okay, then let's do it. Which actually could be done in an interesting way. It could. Uh, yeah, well, they're, they're phenomenally wise. So yes, it seems harsh, but these people are completely uninfluenced by their own desires or any kind of, you know, but no, nothing like that. Just, no. Uh, it seems almost intentional, though, that maybe the reason that no one does anything bad is because in the past, we don't know, I'm having to theorize, mm-hmm. maybe in the past, that was the way, you know, they had to be very harsh and capital punishment for even the most minor of infractions. So yeah, no one wants to act out because they'll get the chop. Oh. But again, like I'm having to put that on it. It's not explained. Yeah, that would have been the prologue, wouldn't it? Yeah. Well, they have this scenario of the garden, which could have been the interesting thing mm-hmm. and then turned out not to be, but where they have you know, a monstrous creature they are afraid of that they have entrapped, but they are keeping very humanely and gently. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then, oh, let's have them executed. Just, it doesn't seem like the same dystopia. No, it doesn't. Especially if it's such a good place that it attracts evil creatures like flies to honey and they have a name for it and they call them Melker. And it doesn't just apply to the Master's TARDIS. It applies to any alien evil that gets trapped and brought here. So it's like, okay, so this happens a lot. The garden could have been an interesting idea, but then it goes very pedestrian, mm-hmm. where they literally just are gardening yeah. all day. They're just gardening all day. And Cassia apparently at some point in the past drove all of the fosters from the grove, but we're not told why. I think I got mixed up quite a bit on the timeline for that. And some of it is because the 
keeper is showing flashbacks yes but i was uncertain about the timeline of when she drove them out and if she just annoyed them out or if there was something more magical going on or... it happened before her marriage to Tremas. well then we have the proctor who's kind of up on things sometimes and other times i think he just naps in the potting shed you mean neiman yeah yes yeah okay so here's the timeline Melker gets captured by Trocken's field of honey goodness. Yeah, there we go. Gets trapped <laughs> in it. And it's not clear whether the Master's TARDIS gets trapped in it because the Master is just pure evil or whether this was his end game all along and he's just being really, really patient, which doesn't sound like the Master, to be honest. But he's there. If there is some evil that gets trapped in the grove, it's trapped. It cannot move. And they assign somebody to take care of it. In this case, it happened to be Cassia. She was a young girl when she was assigned to it. And she's grown up and she's become a council. And then she marries Tremas, who already has a daughter named Nyssa from a previous marriage. And apparently she drove the Fosters from the grove before this. Mm -hmm. But it's a side thing. That the keeper says to her, but for some reason doesn't tell the doctor and Adric about. All he does is say, Yeah, there's something about this statue, and there's some sort of evil in these three good people before me. It's like, Wait a minute, why are you including this in this? What does this have to do with it? Except maybe that's a foreshadowing of the ending because her father is going to end up becoming the master. So, yeah. Yeah, I thought it was more he didn't know which of the three. That it was this sort of new blended family. There's something very wrong, but he doesn't know with which person. And I guess that was something that could be called mildly interesting that yeah. happened. Is that we immediately think it's Cassia, and then by the end, it's uh, Tremus. Sort of, but he isn't, I guess, seduced in the same way. He's just possessed. Yeah, that right? that's exactly yeah, it. Yeah, he's transformed, yeah. Yeah, Tremus is dead at the end. Yeah, there's just a sort of a sudden sucking sound. And yeah, exactly. <laughs> suddenly he's the host body. Yeah. To go back to what you were talking about there, this idea that there must have been some really tyrannical society before, maybe it was warlike, and it was death penalty basically for everything, like, you know, chewing gum and spitting it on the sidewalk or whatever. And they eventually established this keeperhood or keepership, whatever you want to call it. And they kept the death penalty rules because they're just on the books this whole time. That would have been interesting. But no, Dix is not interested in giving us a prologue that says, Trocken was a nightmare once upon a time, which would have at least been interesting. But no, we don't get that. Instead, we get... These bizarre rules. Yeah. If a council takes responsibility for somebody who's under suspicion and the people under suspicion turn out to be guilty, then the council gets put to death as well. If a council is thought of as maybe not up to their job, they have to enter into rapport with the keeper, which is this really invasive mind meld that almost kills them. And if they make it through, they're fine. But if they don't, they're not. There was another one that was just ridiculous. Oh, the final sanction. Yeah. The <laughs> ultimate sanction. <laughs> yeah. 
Thank you for that. Um, essentially, it's you can only impeach a president if they want to be impeached. Oh, wait, that's our system. Mm. Yeah, there you go. They have oh. to agree to it. No, thank you. I'd rather not. <laughs> yeah, precisely. But to get rid of the keeper, all the councils have to agree. And then the keeper has to agree, but that means he's just going to die even sooner. The fuck is wrong with this society? It's just crazy. Well, none of this would be quite so annoying if the doctor did not affirm at the very beginning to Adric how wonderful the society is yeah, and how peaceful. And then he and the keeper are like, ha ha, the youth, he doesn't know how wonderful <laughs> Franken is. And that's quite different from thinking itself a wonderful society with the doctor thinking that they are barbaric. Exactly. I mean, if this were a new series episode, we might actually have the doctor saying something along the lines of, yes, you've had a thousand years of peace, but look at the cost. It's like the Ursula K. Le Guin short story about there's a child suffering in a basement somewhere, and that is the reason for their prosperity. In fact, Doctor Who has done that story in the new series, but this isn't it. Mm -hmm. It would have been interesting, yeah, if if maybe to explain why evil is driven to come there if it would have been something like you know in the past that wasn't extremely evil place Mm -hmm. and so through the transformation to make it to the good place that is why evil is still coming there Mm -hmm. yeah (laughs) you know something to to explain that away instead of just being like yeah there's this cool garden that evil stuff likes to come and (laughs) get stuck in like what i love that idea it's like there's this cool garden and evil just comes to it and gets stuck (laughs) (laughs) it's good for the soil it's good for the soil yeah it doesn't make any damn sense (laughs) i have to admit something to both of you the only thing that got me through this book was pulling apart the ridiculousness in it and there's a lot of ridiculousness but none of it fun. No, none of it. It doesn't make any or sense. Thought provoking. No, no. Or atmospheric. I, and yeah. once again, I can probably blame the shots for this. I had to reread the initial description of the council chamber. It was so <laughs> unengaging. <laughs> it's oh round. My God. There are columns. There's some kind of weird transparent dome thing on the inside. What? Yeah. So I once again, it, it was a little bit of that was me, but it was just everything was as unengagingly generic as possible, including the ridiculousness. And I think even Terrence Dix feels that way about the televised story because he has Adric say something about when he first meets Nissa. He says she's the only young person that he has seen. It seems like Trocken is just made up of old people. Mm-hmm. And certainly the televised story feels that way. Even the Fosters all have tonsures. Mm. It's like, why do they give them all bald spots? I, I guess it's just... I mean, that could be interesting, but it's like a sort of like a religious calling yeah. to tend yeah, the garden. Like monks, yeah. But it's not that. Or rather, the way Neiman acts about money and such, it doesn't seem like it is. Because you wouldn't have a monk just saying, oh, God, I wish I were rich. <laughs> yeah, that that doesn't happen. Well, he's just not good at it. I Yeah, he's <laughs> just <laughs> probably not his calling. He should have gone and done something else. 
Mm. But once again, kind of a, a nonsense ridiculousness that's not fun or entertaining no. or thought provoking or insightful about human nature or society or yeah. Yeah, it's not even really explained. Like if we if we had an explanation for why he was like that, it would be okay. But it it's just like, and he can be bribed. <laughs> it's like okay, yeah. cool, okay, <laughs> <laughs> right. It's just oh. I didn't understand why the council was so quick to turn on the doctor because basically. I mean, the whole deal is that evil can't thrive in this place. Right. So why do they think he is the evil? <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. That's the one part that makes sense to me, but it's not explained in the book. And I'll, I'll <laughs> tell you what I think is going on. Okay. They've had a thousand years of peace. Any evil that threatens them ends up getting stuck in the eternal honeydew that is the grove, mm-hmm. and they don't have to worry about it. <laughs> I mean, like a honeydew list. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they to do evil, evil, evil. <laughs> well, they never have to worry about it because it just gets trapped, right? Mm-hmm. So they've never had to deal with any sort. In fact, it's kind of implied that they don't have wars, they don't have crime, they don't have any of this. They're just in this, you know, eternal loveliness until the keeper dies and then they have to shove somebody else in there for a thousand years and that's it. They probably aren't used to the very concept of anybody being malevolent for its own purposes. So they don't have any way to judge it. Yeah. So I think that definitely uh, Katura and the other one, the one who ends up being the keeper. Luvik. Luvik, thank you. That those two in particular, they're so fussy. They're like, oh, well, we can't do that, but maybe we should. Oh, maybe we shouldn't. Oh, I'm not sure. And it's like, okay, this sounds like a ruling council that's never had any sort of crisis ever. Which was, I guess, something that we we saw in another one of the stories we've read recently. The people in charge never had to make a decision. So when they had to make a decision, they didn't know what to do. They couldn't act. In fact, it reminds me, and I said this in the notes, it reminds me a lot of the Dominators way back in the Troughton era. That council that are just like, oh, well, we need to debate this the entire time that they're being faced by these Dominators who are saying, we are taking over your planet, bitches. Mm -hmm. And the council saying, oh, but we should discuss this. And meanwhile, they're getting killed one by one. It's like, oh, there was no need to do that. We could have debated this. It's like, no. Yeah. I think this is kind of like them. It's also the sort of society setup that wouldn't be out of place on Space 1999, which is unfortunate because Space 1999 is a very different show. They do the sort of high concept alien society pretty well on that show. But Doctor Who needs a lot more internal consistency and this doesn't have it. It's kind of sad that this is... So close to the end for Tom Baker stories. It feels like burning off a script or something. Yeah, and that's just it. There's a lot being set up here, in fact, that I can't even tell you about because I want there to be some surprises. This story was revised heavily to make it an appropriate vehicle to bring back the Master, to be a lead-in to Tom Baker's regeneration, and to make it 
less of a carbon copy of Megalos because the original storyline was that the councils and the Fosters were more like a religious cult and the others were scientific. And it's like, oh, okay, we've done that before, so we can't do that again. That's why this whole business of Tremos having science is kind of a hobby because they don't really have it because they haven't needed it. So you've got this vast calcified society because they've been at peace for a thousand years. So of course they're not flourishing. There's no progress. They're just really happy all the time. And it's like, okay, yeah, but they're kind of forced to be. There are worse ways to live. True. True. It's just, it's a very benevolent sort of dictatorship, but it's still a dictatorship. Mm-hmm. Well, and this is also presumably the only story where Adric is the only companion. Yes. And he's not bad, yeah. but he's not a very strong or personable presence either. No. He's also very different from <laughs> the past versions of him that we've had. Yeah. Uh, how would you characterize that? Well, just uh, why is he all of a sudden so good at math? Well, he always was. But, but, but like the, to the this establishing level, story. <laughs> that's what that star is about, the star of mathematical excellence. But it's not so much math he's suddenly so good at, it's mechanical engineering. Well, yeah, yeah, I guess that that's really it. But yeah, it's it just seems very off and it's it kind of comes out of nowhere. Yeah. And the weird thing about that is that he's turned into this well, polymath really suddenly. And later another character is going to take on that role so it's like wait what's he supposed to be doing here he's actually competent for mm-hmm. once yeah yeah and i actually would thought that was a positive development but then it was still pretty stale well he's a companion <laughs> i mean companions first stories are generally their best stories so we've already seen the best we're going to have of him, except that the converse is true, that sometimes a companion's best story is their last one. You said last time that you saw Green Death, for instance, Allison, and yeah, that's really one of Joe Grant's best stories. I have to admit, I love the way the Fourth Doctor and Adric interact. I don't really like the way Tom Baker and Matthew Waterhouse interact, because you can tell that Tom Baker just hates him. Mm-hmm. and with good reason <laughs> yeah it felt it feels like the doctor is kind of showing adric the ropes being a little snarky with him but but ribbing him a little bit kind of not being necessarily mean but kind of joking with him and creating that kind of relationship that he's had with the previous companions yeah and he's being very avuncular and i like that look on the fourth doctor because The fourth doctor, by and large, travels with female companions. He hasn't had a male companion since Harry Sullivan, and he did not act avuncularly to Harry Sullivan. Mm -mm. But he seems like a cool older uncle, and I like that. But we're not going to see that again. It's not particularly engaging, as I found Adric in the story. You're right, those are the best moments of the book. Well, the first one I found so funny was... (laughs) <laughs> the doctor is told that Adric might be in some terrible danger, and we're told that his ears perked up. Um, <laughs> but, oh, really? Ad- Adric could, could die? I think the only quotes that I have from the book are from their interactions. It looks at Adric despairingly. 
I read about something you've done, and then over the page, the same event hadn't happened at all. Another page, you said it really did happen, but a very long time ago. And the doctor responds, yeah, it's a very sophisticated prose style. <laughs> yeah. But even that's kind of flat relative to what Terrence Dix is capable of. Well, especially since it is, in a nutshell, what this entire project of reading these stories and story order has been, right? Mm-hmm. We find out that something happened, then we find out in the next book it didn't, and then we find out that it happened a long time ago. Mm. Yeah, it's got that feel to it. But yeah, I like the Doctor and Adric together, and it really is a shame that apart from the next story, we're not going to see that dynamic again. Because the next story, well, obviously it's Tom Baker's last, so they're not going to get as much screen time together as they do here, which is kind of unfortunate. I mean, as shames go, I'm prepared to cope with it. (laughs) True. Can we talk about Melker for a sec? Because I have questions. (laughs) I doubt I have answers. Okay. Is Melker the Master's TARDIS? Or is the Master's TARDIS inside whatever this ship is? I assumed that the Master's TARDIS was still the grandfather clock. Because that yeah. is brought up in one of the scenes inside this ship, whatever it is, and it's seen again at the end. Yes. So I figured that this statue thing is some other ship, entity, whatever that the master's using. Mm-hmm. I thought it was the ship and it was the form it was taking, the disguise. Yeah. That's the thing. You could make an Based argument. Based on it dematerializing. Yes, there you go. You could make an argument for either side because his TARDIS is shown to be inside this thing because there's a grandfather clock inside this Melker form. But then the doctor, when he's in there, says it looks like his TARDIS, but it's like a deformed version of it. Yeah, that's right. He does say it's, it's all black instead of all white. Yeah, which is interesting because on screen it doesn't actually look much like a TARDIS at all. It's in later stories that we get this all-black version of the TARDIS that actually is the Master's TARDIS, which is kind of way cool, actually. And the reason why I wonder this is because Melker's got this eye beam thing that only works if you look at it. It's like the ravenous bug bladder beast of Trawl from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, that is described as being so stupid that if you can't see it, it assumes it can't see you. <laughs> so I don't get it. No, that's clever. We don't have anything like that. No, here. we don't. We don't have anything <laughs> that clever here. Why would the eye beams only work if someone were looking at them? I, mean, I guess a laser pointer works that way. It only, you know, blinds you if you're looking straight into it. I guess, but it's said to be so much more powerful than that. and the only reason i bring up these questions is because if i don't bring them up we're going to have a very short discussion because it's obvious we didn't like this book at all yeah yeah it's another one of those things that if we had some reasoning behind it you know even talking about the eyes being the windows to the soul the eyes being a direct line to the brain something to explain that but yeah we don't get anything I mean, for instance, the whole business with the Keeper inviting the Doctor there 
he apparently did tell the councils that someone was coming, but he didn't name who was coming. And then when he is summoned to vouch for them, Melker somehow knows that he's coming to vouch for them and is able to be there in enough time to activate his glowy eye thingy and cause the keeper to freak out and run away. Well, as much as somebody stuck in a chair for a thousand years can run away anywhere. It's like, wait a minute, what? Mm -hmm. How does all this work? Yeah, why why can't he communicate to them without showing up in person? (laughs) Yeah. Seems incredibly inefficient. (laughs) Yeah, you'd think he'd be able to send a text message or something, but no. They kind of developed the source and this poor guy being stuck in a chair for a thousand years before they developed the cell phone. It's like, okay, fine. We can't do that. There's also, they make at least two mentions of a cult of Melker. And that sounds like it's going to be interesting because there are people gathering outside the grove. There's apparently some sort of cult forming, the feeling that Melker is going to take over once the Keeper fails. But it's never brought up again. Yeah, I thought that they were people he had somehow hypnotized who had had opportunity to look into the eyes, maybe. I, I, I assumed that there would be more revelation about them, and then they just wandered off. You can blame them. Yeah, not a single thing. Like you said, Allison, there are all these nice little moments, but they're mostly Doctor and Adric moments, like still to quote an older proverb, what can't be cured must be endured. And Adric says in disgust, that's the silliest thing I ever heard. Mm-hmm. And the Doctor says, oh, don't listen to me. I never do. <laughs> and it's like, those are nice moments, but they're moments. What do we think of the way the Master has been brought back? <laughs> wow that's that's a ringing endorsement <laughs> <laughs> i finished reading the page and i stopped thinking about it oh okay there is on one uh, sort of a, a meta level here uh fact that we know that as you've told us that you know roger delgado died and that these are all other masters they're not our dad <laughs> anyone who plays ambassador now is going to be a different master yes and even though we're not viewing the show or reading the novels, I feel very aware of that mm-hmm. when I read these more recent stories with the master. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't feel very significant. Mm. It would have been at the time. It would have been very significant at the time to, well, for one thing, to have brought back the master in that emaciated form in Deadly Assassin was a big turn mm-hmm. that the fans at the time hated They despise the fact that the Master should have been in that emaciated form, which is why I look back at it and say, oh, that's brilliant. That's a brilliant idea to do that. And to bring him back, not regenerating necessarily, but using the power of the Keeperhood to essentially take over somebody's body. He's left poor Nyssa without a father or a stepmother. He's murdered them both. Yeah, definitely was not expecting that last page where he kills Tremas and takes his body. That is probably like the most mastery thing <laughs> out of the the whole story to me. Because even the idea of him like taking over the source feels like a run of the mill kind of bad guy move. Yeah. <laughs> but like 
literally killing someone to take their body mm-hmm. is so nefarious and so like dark. Yeah. <laughs> and that seems like so messed up to me. It's also extremely masterful, <laughs> masterly, whatever adverb we're using for him. It strikes me as the sort of thing the master would do to gaslight a young girl through her teenage years into womanhood to think, I am your friend, I am going to help you, and then materialize your TARDIS on top of her to get the power that is connected to her body. Yeah, The murder of Cassia is actually pretty nasty because he materializes his TARDIS over her, essentially. Mm. Yeah, I didn't get okay. that. Yeah, I didn't get that. <laughs> because Taryn Sticks could give two fucks about it at this point. He describes her as hearing moans of agony and then her body dematerializing. On screen, though, she is definitely in agony and is writhing on the Keeper's throne. And then you see her body kind of being pulled into the vortex and the Malker form taking its place. And it's like, ooh, that's mean. <laughs> that's definitely something the master would do but you're right it's got this kind of bond villain quality to it and unfortunately i, I can't say it's going to improve because uh, the master in the 80s is a very different character than he was in the 70s that's all i can say which is unfortunate because anthony ainley actually could play a delgado type of master if he chose to but that's not what's going to happen I will say this, and I don't think I brought it up at all, but the first time we see Anthony Ainley in Doctor Who, we see him as Tremas. Hmm. So that's kind of interesting that you have somebody playing a character that we spend four episodes with, getting to know, getting to like, and then suddenly he's the most evil character that the show has, and he's going to stay that way for the rest of whatever. So there, there is that, but that's the only thing that's interesting about the story. <laughs> that and the, the weird thing hanging off of Tom Baker's nose when he's in the prison. <laughs> it's kind of a famous blooper that for some reason Tom Baker has something hanging off his nose. It looks like it's just a dust bunny or something, but it also <laughs> looks like he needs uh, tissue paper. It's kind of a shame, really. Just like me right now, in fact. Ah. <sighs> Is there anything else we want to say about this? Please, Lord, make it end. (laughs) I think it's time for Goodreads, son. Yeah, I'd say it's time for Goodreads, as we always do. Let's go to Goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers and follow up with our own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book or you simply have a question about it, simply read the book, write a review, or comment on our Goodreads group by the deadline so we have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves. You may just get your review read out loud here. The average rating for this book on Goodreads out of five stars is 3.63. Much higher than I expected. Yes, it strikes me as rather high. The reviews from our Goodreads group have again been edited for length. Sorry, everyone, but keep them coming. In our Goodreads group, Dave Davies is back and gives it three stars and says, The scriptwriter of the story, Johnny Byrne, took part in the DVD commentary and said that it was successful because it looked like a theater play and was quite Shakespearean in appearance. I almost agree. The BBC did a lot of drama where realism wasn't deemed particularly important. 
six wives of Henry VIII, Elizabeth R., I. Claudius, and the same year they did a series of Shakespeare plays. They weren't quite theatrical, as they employed television techniques such as close-ups. It was the sound design that gave all these plays a theatrical feel, and Keeper had the same feel, apart from the laser effects. Shakespeare, for some reason, never had laser effects. <laughs> well, I've seen a few productions, Dave, that actually do, but that's all right. I liked the television version so much that I didn't think I'd enjoy the book at all. Maybe it was because the original made such an impression on me that I could sense the atmosphere of the TV show, or perhaps Terrence Dick's writing captured it, but I was transported back to 1980, recording the soundtrack from a portable television onto a cassette tape. That tape, scrupulously put together over the four weeks of broadcast, was absolutely rubbish. And I was glad of the book when it was published. Perhaps that's why I like the book. God. I understand that. I completely get that. <laughs> Daniel Kukwa gives it three stars and says one of Terrence Dick's more straightforward adaptations. Nothing fancy, no major embellishments, just an easy-to-read, faithful prose version of the rather lyrical TV adventure. That's a word that gets bandied about a lot for the TV version, that it's lyrical. I would not call this book lyrical. Anyway, back to Daniel. I appreciate that Mr. Dix adds an introduction that neatly ties the story into the longer arc it was part of during the 1980-81 season. There's an introduction? I didn't see it. And finally, Mary gives it two stars and simply says, really not a story that caught my interest, had to keep starting it over again to remember what was happening, not very rememberable, LOL, <laughs> would not read again. Just as we're not going to read any of Mary's reviews ever again, because <laughs> my God. I think that what Daniel's talking about is the paragraph at the beginning that explains that they just came from eSpace. Oh, that. Okay. It's very brief. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> hardly a prologue in the way that we're jonesing for a prologue, but yeah. <laughs> so, Allison, out of five stars. Oh, wait, I, I always ask Dalton first. I'm sorry. She can go first. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm, I'm just so discombobulated now. Oh, God. So, Allison, out of five stars, what would you give this? I'm going to go 1.5. Oh, eh, maybe 1.25. Okay. Well, it does sound like there is some value in the episode as aired. Yes. I did not have that golden experience that the reviewers had of seeing the episode. Uh, once again, some of this is my state of mind when I listened to and read this, but it is... Once again, not offensively bad. It's just the least engaging one of the novelizations that we've read. And part of my role as ignorant person in chief here is, <laughs> is to react to the novelizations as a person who has never seen the episodes before we actually read them. Mm -hmm. Some I have seen after, but never before. Right. And it is almost completely without interest or merit as just a novel. Ooh. Okay. And Dalton? I'm kind of stuck between a 3 and a 2.5, but I'll go 2.5. Just, yeah, the story just left me with a lot of questions. There wasn't a whole lot that interested me, even with the master coming back once I started realizing that was what was happening. Even that wasn't enough to make me 
care a whole lot about mm-hmm. what's hap- what was happening with this story. There's not a whole lot that's memorable. There's not a whole lot that really shines about it. Terrence Sticks' prose is perfectly fine. It's not the worst thing that we've ever read of his, but it's definitely not the best thing we've ever read of his. So it's just kind of middle of the road for me. Okay. And as for me, I would give it a two only because it, I'm, I'm going back to the Trey Corte rule that if it adapts the story faithfully, then it's an okay novelization by itself. That's all this one does. I know that we get a lot of stick for giving Terrence Sticks a hard time. And the thing is, sometimes he deserves it. <laughs> sometimes he does not put in the necessary work. And we've actually had other script-to-page novelizations of his that I don't remember disliking nearly as much as this one. Also, I would ask you two to put yourselves in my shoes and imagine that every single surprise in the story, you already know. There's just nothing here. So I can only imagine that if it was bad for somebody who didn't know what was coming, then, yeah, it's equally bad or worse for somebody who supposedly well, actually does know what's happening. The introduction of the Master, the introduction of certain other plot elements that we'll see in the next story and the ones after, yeah, that's all the story is for. And it's Johnny Byrne. And Johnny Byrne isn't the greatest writer who comes along to Doctor Who. We're going to see him introduce old villains again at some point later on. And he botches it there, too. So, yeah. More to look forward to. (laughs) More to look forward to. So much more to look forward to. So, two stars. (laughs) Well, thank you both. Mm Mm-hmm. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for wasting your valuable time with us. <laughs> the comments that we are going to elicit from people who say, you hate all the books. There are actually several we've yeah. recently. Yeah, that's true. But that's not this true. one. I would, not this one. I would point you to those previous ones. Next time, we record live from Chicago TARDIS on Sunday, November 27th, right around 12 p.m. Central Standard Time. As we complete Tom Baker's final season by looking at Christopher H. Bidney's novelization of Legopolis. Details of when the live recording will take place and how you can participate will be available in our Facebook group at Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast, all in word with no spaces, or by emailing me directly at emperordalek at gmail.com. And the recording, the edited recording of that live presentation, will appear on our SoundCloud page as usual, probably within the week after Chicago Tardis. In the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook. I already gave you the name. Also, feel free to follow us on Twitter. We're at DWTargetPC, or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice. If all else fails you, and it inevitably will, email me directly with Target Book Club in the subject line so I don't ignore it. Thank you very much for listening. Stay safe and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.
Direction point. Direction point. A Doctor Who Podcast Network.